The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I want to invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. I'll give attention today to verses 1 through 16. Luke 10, 1 through 16. Luke writes, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever, uh, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. I'm sure as we read through the text that there are a couple of things that that you noticed. Uh, If you've been tracking along with us here in the Gospel of Luke, that much of the content of this text sounds eerily familiar to what we saw back in chapter 8. If you were here back in April when we looked at a similar passage when Jesus sent out his 12 apostles on a very similar kind of trip, his instructions to them were in many ways markedly similar to these. So if you were here that Sunday when we studied that, you'll hear some things that are quite familiar to you. They bear repeating, and we will repeat them this morning. And I always sort of, when I'm working through a book, wrestle with this. Like, hey, we just talked about this a few weeks ago. 
But then I always come to the same conclusion. Well, the Lord gave it to us twice, so he must mean for us to read it twice. And he must know that we need to be reminded of it more than once. And so we'll study it the way he's given it to us. The other thing you may have noticed as we were reading through that passage is it's quite long and there's a lot in it. And uh, you've got other things to do today, probably. Um, I was going to tell you, uh, don't worry, I have a flight scheduled for this afternoon, so we have a hard break. I can only go so far. But uh, just before uh, coming in this morning, I got that wonderful alert that said your flight has been canceled. So make yourselves at home. Uh, I have nowhere to be and nowhere to go. And a lot of Bible in front of me. So, um, so there you have it. All right. Enough. Let's, let's go to Luke chapter 10. Uh, as, as we sort of dive back into Luke's gospel here in chapter 10, into, again, some, some somewhat familiar territory, Luke here in this particular text adds some different things. He records some different things for us that, he, that Jesus says to this group of 72 that he's about to send out that he didn't record for us that he said to the other 12 when he sent them out. Doesn't mean he didn't say the same things, just meant Luke didn't record that he said the same things. So perhaps the message was the same. And he just chose here to tell us the bigger picture than back in chapter 8. In either case, what I want sort of to be leading your thoughts as we move into this is what we see here both in chapter 8 in his commission of the 12 and sending them out on the internship and here his commission of, of an additional 72 and sending them out on really the first sort of missionary journey outside of the apostles is that there's a, a sort of a template for God's mission, for his work in the world. And it really is the form, sort of forms the foundation of our mission statement as a church. We and people ask, what is Grace on the Ashley about? Well, I hope you know how to answer that question. Grace on the Ashley exists to make, mature, and multiply disciples for Jesus. That's what we, you were gonna, you're gonna nod your head because you're affirming to me that you knew that and that if somebody asked you, you could say that right off the top of your brain, right? What is your church about? Well, we're about making, maturing, and multiplying disciples for Jesus. That's what we do. And we do that because that is what Christ commissioned the original 12 to do. And it's what here we see commissions a, a broader group of 72 to do. And it's my firm conviction, it's what he's always con commissioned his people to go do. To make disciples, to mature them, to help them grow, and then to send them out to do ministry multiplying the reach of the, of the gospel. At the very beginning in Matthew 4, when Jesus called his original apostles, we saw this template there in Matthew 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. But that's the call. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. Leave what you're doing. Leave your old life and come follow me. I want you to become a part of my mission. Submit to my will. Submit to my leadership. Submit to me as the king of your life. Become my disciple. That's making disciples. And subsequent to that, when you do that, I'm going to do something in your life. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to mature you. I'm going to train you. Train you on what? I'm going to train you on everything you need to be able to go out and do for others what I'm doing for you so that you can go out and multiply the work that I'm doing. Jesus called them. He, he made disciples. He matured them. And then he multiplied the ministry of the gospel and the reach of it by sending them out. 
It's what we do too. It's what he did in chapter 8 with the 12. It's what he does here again with a broader group of 72. Now here, uh, this, this text that we look at this morning uh, is only recorded by Luke. So the other gospel writers don't tell us about this particular mission trip. We don't really know why, uh, but Luke does. And so we have confidence that it took place. Uh, it, it's notable in a couple of things. It's notice, noticeable, really, that these 72 missionaries are not identified by name. We have no idea who they were. They're not identified. It seems to be quite clear that that wasn't very important who they were. The point isn't who they were. It was what they were called to do and how they were to go about doing it. Presumably, these are 72 men who had been following and listening and learning who had already, who had already died to themselves and taken up their cross and followed Jesus and were faithful followers. And so Christ commissions them and he gives them instructions on how to go about doing ministry. These are men who've been evangelized. They're men who've been sort of taught the gospel, and now they're men who are being sent out to declare and carry the gospel to other people. And that is how Christian discipleship works. Christian discipleship isn't finished until the one who's being evangelized is sent to go and evangelize. That's how it works, that's the cycle. The one who's discipled right? The one who's discipled is now sent out to disciple other people. You can look all throughout the New Testament, and I defy you to find an example where, where Christ affirms or, or sort of, um, uh, well, affirms is the best word, affirms some, some brand of Christianity whereby people become, become Christians by virtue of uh, repenting of their sin and entrusting their lives to Christ and then sit and become learners for the rest of their life and never go. There is no template for that in the New Testament. That's why the church is not the same thing as a seminary. There's a teaching aspect to the church, but there's also a sending aspect to the church. And the goal of Christian teaching and Christian maturity is to prepare the people of God to go and take the gospel into a world that's lost and dying. It's the whole point. Jesus trained the 12 with that in view. He trained the 72 with that in view. And throughout the book of Acts, we see that template continue to follow on throughout the history of the church. And so here we have these 72 being commissioned, and the, they're, they're being commissioned for the very first time to go out on their own and do ministry. And there are some things that they need to learn, some things that they need to understand about what it looks like to do Christian ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. They, they need to have some, some sort of character traits baked into their lives that are only learned by experience. And so Jesus launches them on this trip in order to build into them these characteristics. And incidentally, they're the same characteristics that need to be baked into your life and mine if we're going to represent Christ faithfully in the world around us. So let's look at them. We'll sort of uh, break up the text according to these things this morning. And again, there will be some repeat from chapter 8. Uh, those where we repeat, I'll sort of just move quickly across those and not spend a lot of time, and we'll focus a little more on uh, what we have new here. But the first thing that we're gonna see here that needs to be baked in sort of to, to, to Christians in order to represent Christ well in the world is it, it deals with the issue of motivation. What is it that is to motivate Christian ministry? 
And Jesus makes very clear here what is to motivate these 72. And he tells us in verses 1 and 2 exactly what that is. He says they're to be compelled by the coming judgment. The way the Lord says it is this. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Jesus gets right at the heart of motivation at the very beginning here. And it may not be really obvious on the surface of that text what he's saying, so let's walk through it a little bit. And this was something that I hadn't really, uh, until recent years, fully grasped exactly what Jesus was getting at here. Sort of the way I'd always heard this taught growing up was the idea that when, when Jesus is talking about the harvest is ripe, he's, he's looking out at the world and he's seeing a bunch of people who are ready to be saved and, and they're just sort of waiting there for somebody to bring them the gospel and he, we need more people to go out and to bring them the gospel so that therefore through it they might be able to be saved. And, and these people who come to Christ then are then this, this good and, 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 and filling and positive harvest of souls that are coming into the kingdom. Or if you heard it taught in more reform circles, you might heard it, you may have heard it sort of cast this way, that when we look out on the world, the Lord has a bunch of elect out there, people who are predestined for eternal salvation, and somebody needs to go and take them the gospel because they're ready and willing and able, and when the gospel comes, they will respond and they will come to Christ and that they will be saved. They just need somebody to go get them. And conceptually, both of those things are true. I don't, don't mean to discount either of those things. I believe both of those things are true. That when people go out and do ministry and we share the gospel faithfully, God has people prepared, ready to hear and respond positively to the gospel. And the only way a person can be saved is to hear the gospel and respond to it by faith and repentance or to read it. Primarily, though, by hearing it by somebody sharing it with them. God could save people just with a snap of his fingers, but he chooses to use people to reach people. So that is true. There is a sense in which all of that conceptually is true. And in part, that is a, that is a good and righteous and holy motivation for us to go do ministry, that, that God desires to save people. The means through which he does that is faithful people like us who go and share the gospel, and we want to be a part of his mission, and he's going to harvest in, if you will, souls to the kingdom through the work that we do. But I don't think that's the issue that Christ is getting at when he says the harvest is plentiful. There's another way to understand the word harvest and the concept of harvest in the Bible. And it's got a rich Old Testament history. If we were to look back in this morning, we only have time to look at two places. We look back at the Old Testament, uh, harvest is not usually referred to as a great thing. In some cases, like in Isaiah 17 and Joel chapter 3, when the Bible speaks about a harvest, it's using the concept of harvest as an illustration for judgment and eternal damnation. Isaiah 17 verse 10 and following is one example of that. Isaiah, or God through Isaiah, is, is sort of bringing some severe judgment on people who have rebelled against them and against him. And here's what he says, for you've forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. 
There's a harvest that's coming for people who rebel. A day of grief and incurable pain. Joel chapter 3, same thing. God's gathering his people in the end for judgment. Beginning in verse 11. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread the winepress, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The picture here is a picture of judgment at the end. And the harvest being ripe and the sickle of God coming down is not a picture that is pleasant. It's a picture of God's ultimate judgment on those who rebel in the end. Multitudes of people, Joel says, will face a decision. If they make the wrong one, there's a harvest that's ripe, a ripe harvest of judgment that's waiting for them. In Matthew chapter 13, a familiar parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the wheat and the tares. A similar concept is presented there where you may recall the, the parable. The parable is a, a, there was a, a farmer who had a field and, and he had sowed wheat and the wheat began to grow up and, and they realized as it was growing that sometime along the way an enemy had come in and sown weeds in the midst of his field. He's trying to figure out what in the world do we do? If we go out there and try to rip up all the weeds, we're going to pull up some of the good, the good uh, wheat with it. So how do we deal with that in a, in a field? And this is all an illustration of how God deals with people in the world where both wheat and tares grow at the same time. And at the end of that parable in verse 30, here's what Jesus says. You let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest, I will tell the reapers... Gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the weed into my barn. Well, it's true in that particular parable, that the harvest includes both. Those who are weeds that are gathered to be burned and wheat that are gathered into the barn. The focus of the parable itself is on the weeds and the problem of the weeds and how those weeds are going to be dealt with. And Jesus says in no uncertain terms, the weeds are going to be gathered and harvested destroyed when I mean, Jesus looked out over these cities that he was sending these 72 people into what he saw was a sea of people for whom judgment was ahead in the future the sickle of God's judgment was in a real sense resting on their heads they were hopeless they were condemned they were headed for an eternal hell apart from god and jesus understood that there was a harvest of judgment coming and that if somebody doesn't go if if laborers aren't sent into the field and the gospel does not go out that is the destiny of every human soul in every one of those cities the harvest of god's judgment is coming and there are far too few people to go and tell them the good news of how to be saved. Unlike us, Jesus was fully aware of what hell is like. 
He never lost sight of that. It's easy for us to lose sight of that. It's easy for us to live our lives navigating with people all the time, overlooking the fact that that's where most people that we know are going eternally. Jesus couldn't overlook that reality. He couldn't overlook that reality. He could not overlook the awfulness of hell and eternal hell, the eternal judgment of God, and he couldn't overlook the fact that so many were headed there, going there. The end of Matthew 13, that same parable, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, he'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't like to think about hell, do we? We don't like to think about eternal damnation. We don't like to think about the fact that most of the people we know are headed there. One author described hell this way. He said, there's no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity has ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produces a terror to match that of the mildest hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could even touch the borderlands of hell. When Jesus looked out over the sea of humanity and to whom he was sending these 72, he was struck with that reality. If someone does not bring them the gospel, they will face the terrible, awful harvest of the judgment of God. And all his ministry was geared toward saving people from that faith, that fate. Why are you here, Jesus? What is your ministry? I came to seek and to save the lost. Save them from what? The harvest of God's judgment that's to come. Let me ask you this. When you look out into your sort of circle of influence in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, do you ever consider the harvest Does that ever weigh on your heart to any degree whatsoever? The people that you know and that you care about, that you rub shoulders with, will one day breathe their last breath here and will then face the harvest of God's judgment and will be condemned forever, separated from God, doomed to pay the just penalty for their own sins. If somebody doesn't go, where are they going to be? Does it even matter to you? Is there any motivation in your heart because of that? It's what motivated Christ, and it's what he wanted to motivate his 72, is he sent them out. As he sent them out to knock on doors, is what they did. He wanted them to realize that every person that opened a door and and had a face looking at them was a human soul that was potentially destined for the harvest of God's judgment. And he wanted that to drive them to go. 
well, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, he says, the need outweighs the supply. The number of those who are awaiting the gospel is massive. The number of those who are willing to go and are sent are minuscule in comparison. Jesus feels the weight of lostness, and he wants these 72 to feel it too. He wants them to understand that there is a sea of people, and they're a small group. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are not. He wants them to realize that they don't have everything it takes to reach it, and they too need to be praying. Even as they go, they need to be praying that the Lord of the harvest would send more people to go alongside them. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. He's praying for laborers to go. Pray that God's people would go. Pray that God's people would not be indifferent and apathetic and cold to lostness. Pray that God's people would not make excuses and be distracted and be selfish and not go. Pray that God's people would overcome their fears and get off their duffs and get out of their comfort zone and go into the harvest fields. Pray that God would send them and pray that they would go. Oh, the, the same thing is true today as it was then. The harvest is just as plentiful and the workers are still just as few. The worldwide population today, do you know what it is? Just guess. 7.91 billion people give or take, 7.91 billion in the world in which we live. Out of that 7.91 billion, there are at least 3.34 billion that are in unreached people groups who have no gospel witness whatsoever. 3.34 billion people in our world who have no gospel witness at all. The harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. If we were to sort of zoom in to our own nation, just sort of take the camera from worldwide here to the United States of America, we find that the lostness is increasing all around us. I saw an article this week, maybe you saw it in the news as well. The headline caught my attention. The number of Americans who believe in God drops to an all-time low. Did you see this one? A couple of different surveys that they reference in this particular article. A particular Gallup poll that's been taken since 1944 um, deals with a number of different things, but one of the questions they want to address is what percentage of Americans believe in God? We're talking just baseline, believe in God. They would answer the question, do you believe in God? Yes. Today, or I say that today, this year when this survey was taken, 81% of Americans believe in God or affirm that. That's the lowest percentage since the poll's been conducted and it started in 1944. The number of American adults who believe in God is down 6% just from 2017. Just to sort of show you the trajectory, between the years 1953 and 1967, okay, 53 to 67, a good number of you were alive in those years, right? 98% of adults said they believed in God, on average. By 2011, it was down to 92%. And now we're down to 81. 
more disturbing than that. In the same survey, when you look at young adults between the ages of 18 and 29, and you want to discern how many of those believe in God, only 68%. So the broader population, 81%, but particularly our younger people, 68%. You see the trajectory, right? If you want to break it down and dig a little deeper, another Gallup poll of 6,117 Americans taken between 2018 and 2020 found that only 47% of Americans belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque. 47%. First time that that's ever been less than 50%. In fact, between 1937 until the mid-80s, House of Worship membership was at somewhere around 71%. So between the 80s and today, like the, the, the era when rock and roll was good to today, the era when rock and roll was good to today, we've gone from 71% to 47% of the population that's attached to any kind of a house of worship. In fact, if you want to just get down to brass tacks and you want to start looking at people groups, millennials, that's the, the generation just behind me. The oldest millennials are, I think, around 41 right now. It's like late 20s to around 41, if, if my numbers are right. In a similar survey, asking millennials what they believe, what percentage of millennials believe that the universal purpose for all people is to know, love, and serve God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. 19% of millennials affirm that. What percentage of millennials look to horoscopes for guidance? 35%. Let that sink in for a minute. And the point I'm trying to make, just from the statistics, is that not only are there billions of people worldwide that are headed for the harvest of God's judgment, well, there are millions of people in our own nation. And the gap is going in the wrong direction. The harvest is plentiful. In our own zip code, 29414, uh, if the statistics are right, there are well over 20,000 people who don't know Christ. Within a five-mile radius of where you sit right now, over 40,000 people don't know Christ. It means, you know, within a five-mile track of wherever you go from here, to Walmart, to the grocery store, to the gym, wherever. There's 40,000 people that you'll encounter who are destined for eternal hell. So the question then becomes, are you willing to pray that God would send laborers into that harvest? And as we pray that God would send laborers in the harvest, we, ask to ask, we have to ask the question, am I willing to go and be one of the laborers that goes to the harvest? Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. That's piercing. But it's the way it ought to be. God's people 
must care about the harvest of judgment that's coming. And so he sends these men, and they have to be compelled by that driving passion. There's a second thing they need to be compelled by, and they need to, this sort of needs to mark their life, and that's a trust in God's provision. We see this in verse 3 through 6, um, where he says, Go your way, I'm sending you like lambs amidst wolves. Carry no money or knapsack or sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, say, Peace be to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. Now, we dealt with this extensively a couple of months ago, but just for repetition's sake, there are a couple of things that they need to understand about going and representing Christ. They have to trust in his provision. They do not have in themselves what they need to be successful at the cause. So there's a couple of things here that they need to trust Christ for. They need to trust Christ for their physical protection. He says, I'm sending you like what? Like lambs amidst wolves. Now, what, you know, like, you, you flip on YouTube and they've got like the, the animal battle video. You all watch them, I know. And there's a lamb and there's a wolf. Whose money are you, where are you putting your money? The wolf, right? Lambs don't stand a chance against wolves. He says, I'm sending you like lambs in the midst of wolves. You're gonna have to trust in my protection because you don't have what it takes. It's going to be a dangerous mission that I'm sending you on. And there are going to be people who hate you and hate your ministry and hate your message. And they will come after you. You're going to have to look to me for a daily provision of physical protection. Jesus knew that these men were going to face opposition. He knew that that was going to be the reality. That was the reality for him. It was going to be the reality for them. And it was going to be the reality of every missionary that ever goes out into the world and represents the Lord Jesus Christ. And it still is the experience of everyone who does that faithfully. Much of the lost world around us hates the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel does a number of things. It defines and it exposes their sin. It holds them accountable for their sin. It restricts their illusion of freedom. And the gospel provides only one way to be saved and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world does not want to hear that message. And there has been and there always will be a segment of the population that is going to respond to that with hostility and aggression. And these men were going to face that and so they needed to look to Christ and be able to trust in his provision so that they weren't constantly captivated by fear. And then the second thing they needed to trust in his provision was on their essential supplies, their daily needs. That's why he tells them, here, don't carry extra supplies with you. Travel light. You don't need extra shoes. You don't need an extra knapsack. You don't need any money. I want you to just go. And as you go, you watch me provide everything you need every single day. And you will learn day in and day out that you can trust me. That you can trust me to provide everything that you need. Apart from the apostles' missionary journey and the, the missionary journey of the 12, we don't have God sending any other missionaries out this way. So it's unique here. It's not a template for all eternity. It's not every missionary is to go with no money and no clothes. The point here is these men were foundational to the launch of the church, and they had to learn they could trust God. So he sends them out with no extra supplies, with no extra money. They're to go to people's houses, knock on the door, and they're to say, peace be to this house. It's another way of saying that they're to, 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 to sort of um, give a blessing of peace 
that relates to the gospel over the house. And in a funny sort of a way, he says, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. This is an interesting way of saying, if there's a receptive person there who is open to the message and wants to hear the gospel and welcomes you in, then the peace that you offer will rest on them. And you're to engage. He goes on to say, if they're not receptive, that is, if they're not a son of peace, then your blessing bounces back at you and you're to move on to somewhere else. They needed to learn by experience that they could trust God to provide their needs. They needed to know this. They needed to see it. And I'm not sure it's possible for us to truly know and to truly know if we can trust Christ until we're in a place in life where we have no choice but to trust him. As long as you and I can scheme and plan and practice and set up backup plans for ourselves, we never really are in a position where we're certain if we can trust God to provide for us, right? It's only when we get in those positions in life where we have no backup plan, where we don't have extra money, where we don't know where the next thing is going to come from, and we see him provide, that we learn he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. I can obey him. And I can trust that he is going to provide for me. So he puts these men in a position where they have no safety net and they have no backup plan. And he's sending them on a hard mission among people who are going to be harsh in their response to him. And they needed to learn how to trust God's provision every day. It did not come natural to them, and it doesn't come natural to you, and it doesn't come natural to me. So we have to learn. There's a lot these men lacked as he sent them, but the mission was absolutely urgent. And I'm certain they didn't feel ready, and I'm certain that they were actually, you know, sort of anxious about their supplies and how they were going to eat every day and how this was all going to work out. But they would never know his provision until they stepped out and went. He didn't give them a complete roadmap. He didn't explain to them all the details. He just told them where to go and what to do and expected them to trust him. God sends his people out into the world and he says, you're gonna have to trust me to provide. I'm not gonna give you the roadmap. I'm not gonna explain every contingency. I'm calling you to be faithful and obey and trust me. That's what I'm calling you to do. And I wonder for you this morning, is he calling you to do something that you're afraid to act on? Is God calling you to do something? Is he, is he sending you out into the harvest and you're not going because you're afraid? Afraid you're not going to have what it takes? Is he calling you to leave your career, become a pastor, become a missionary, become a Bible translator, become something? But you're afraid? You don't know how that's going to work out? Is he calling you to volunteer to serve in some ministry and, and you're afraid, you've never done it before, you're not sure you can do it, you don't know if you can teach, you don't know if you can lead, you don't know if you have the right answers to all the right questions. So you're not going anywhere, you're not doing it. Is he calling you to share the gospel with your neighbor or a friend or a coworker, but you haven't done it because you're afraid? We never see God's provision until we step out and actually do the thing he's called us to do. And we trust him. Ministry is built on trust in God's provision. And it's also built in a 
contentment with what he provides. That's what he says next. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Just in short here, we talked about this a couple months ago. The, the deal is when these guys were traveling, there's no hotels, there's no Holiday Inn Express, no cinnamon rolls, nothing, right? There's no, no place to just check in. So customarily, people open their homes to travelers. Somebody knocks on your door, says, hey, I'm traveling from here to there. I need a place to sleep tonight. And you would customarily open your home and invite them in and give them a meal and a place to sleep and offer them hospitality, unless you were a jerk. So that was the idea here. You go to the town, you knock on somebody's door, and when somebody opens the door and they offer you hospitality, you go into their home and you accept their hospitality and you get about the work of the mission. You be content with whatever I provide you through that family. You don't go around the town knocking on other doors the next day trying to better your circumstance. You don't go around trying to get better accommodations next week than the house that I provided for you. You don't go around trying to find a place that can give you better food than what you receive in that home. You open the door, and where they open the door, when they welcome you in, you go in and you stay there until it's time to leave that town. The whole issue here is they need to learn to be content with what God provides and not always be looking for more and better. And furthermore, their testimony was at stake people needed to know God's ministers and how to tell them apart from the false teachers. There needed to be no question about what motivated them. There needed to be no question in people's mind, hey, is this guy really just about himself? Is he just really moving about trying to line his own pocket, get things better for himself? Is he really just using people and manipulating people for his own ends? They had people in that culture that did that too, just like we do in ours. And so Jesus says, you don't have any part of that. You go and where you're welcomed, you go there and you stay there. And you be content with what I provide you through that family until it's time to leave town. And you get about the mission. Don't waste any time worrying about logistics. Once somebody opens the door, your logistics are settled. Now you go about taking the gospel. Be content with what God provides. Not always looking for more and better. And then, of course, the mission was similar to that of the other 12, where it was a two-pronged mission. It was a mission in both word and deed, where they needed to have both compassion for human suffering and also really a, a confidence in God's message. It's both of those things, really, a, a contentment with God's provision, but also a compassion for human suffering and a confidence in God's message. So their mission was twofold. Heal the sick and tell people the gospel. Heal the sick and tell people the kingdom of God has come near. That's just sort of a shorthand way of telling them the gospel. The king, the Messiah, has arrived. His kingdom has been inaugurated. It's going to be consummated at the end, but it's already been inaugurated, and you're welcomed into his kingdom through faith and repentance and submission to the king. And so as they went into this, these cities, they were to do two things. They were to care for both people's bodies and their souls. They were to heal the sick, and they were to deal with the suffering of their bodies to the best that they could, and they were then to also deal with the suffering of their soul, giving them the gospel. Both of these things really mattered, and Jesus modeled both of them. They were not to be cold preachers who only cared about intellectual content. 
There would be people who loved people and who were moved by compassion for their suffering and who were willing to act and do something to help with their human suffering. And God, Jesus, uniquely empowered them to be able to heal during the season at least, to relieve their suffering. And while I don't believe that God continues to gift people with that kind of a personal gift to go about healing at will, he certainly does heal people anytime, anywhere, any way he wants to, normally in response to prayer. But the template that is laid down is that God's people should care about other people, both in body and soul. That when we go about sharing the gospel, that we share the truth of the gospel that deals with their sin and their, and their soul, but we also should care when they suffer. And to the degree that we have the ability and the means, we should help to alleviate that suffering. Because as we care for people's body, as we preach the message that will redeem their soul, it, it adds legitimacy and it shows that the message we preach is a message that's built out of genuine love and compassion. But that's what these men were to do, to preach the gospel. The kingdom of God has come near. They weren't to come up with something trendy. They weren't to come up with, with something new. They were to preach an old message. They weren't to get caught up talking about the culture and social affairs and political affairs and trendy issues. They were to tell them about the kingdom of God. Stick to the message. Don't create a new one. And have confidence that that message is sufficient to redeem the soul. That's what they were to do. Herald the good news of the kingdom. Stick to the gospel. Have compassion for people's suffering and help them as you're able. And then finally, he says they need to have resilience in the face of rejection. Whenever you enter a town and they don't re receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. He knew that everybody wasn't gonna welcome these men. Everybody wasn't gonna open the door and say, come on in, we wanna hear. They were gonna go to some towns where they were gonna find absolutely nobody who would open the door to them. Nobody would go door to door and everybody would shut the door in their face and say, no, thank you. What do you do when that happens? What do you do when you hear no over and over and over and over? Do you get discouraged? Do you quit? Do you argue and debate with everybody? Do you try to gain political power and change the culture of the town? Do you go on social media tirades? Nope. You simply go into the street and you shake the dust off your feet. It's a sign of rejection and condemnation. And you remind them once again of the message. You say, you may not believe what I have to tell you, but it doesn't change the truth from being the truth. The kingdom of God is at hand, whether you enter it or you don't. The gospel is true whether people believe it or they don't. And then Jesus says something absolutely remarkable. And our time is up. But I want you to let it seek in. He says this, I tell you, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. If you know your Old Testament, then the name of the town Sodom probably rings a bell. It was a town that was so notorious for its evil, in particular, its rampant sexual evil. 
In particular, it's rampant homosexual evil, among other things. That the Lord rained fire down from heaven and destroyed the place, along with its neighboring city, Gomorrah. Hear what Jesus says here. He says, in the end, Sodom is going to be better off at the judgment than the people of these towns who hear the gospel from these 72 and reject it. That's pretty stark, isn't it? There's a higher level of accountability to people who hear the gospel and reject it than there is to those who never hear it. He goes on to expand at the end of this text, and he, he references Tyre and Sidon, two other pagan cities who were notorious for their evil and their rebellion. And he mentions Chorazan, and he mentions Bethsaida and Capernaum. All three of those were the towns that were right there in the hub of where Jesus' ministry was. They had exposure to him all the time, and his miracles, and his teaching, and all of his ministry, and largely the people in all of those areas rejected him. And they had such high exposure to the truth, and they rejected it. He says to them, your judgment will be worse than the judgment that is coming on Tyr and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. That's pretty serious. To hear the gospel and to reject it puts a person or a place in tremendous peril, tremendous peril. If you're sitting here this morning and you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over again, and you're still sitting on the fence, and you haven't crossed the line and repented of your sin and bowed before the king, you need to understand the judgment that awaits you and the accountability that sits at your doorstep because you've been exposed to the truth. The harvest is real. He closes this up with saying in verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It's a helpful reminder to every missionary, when you are rejected, it isn't personal. When you're rejected, when you share the gospel, it isn't personal. People are rejecting you, but they're really rejecting Christ. And when they reject Christ, they are rejecting the Godhead in total. Don't get discouraged, don't quit. It isn't about you. It isn't that you've done it wrong. It isn't that you're a failure. It's that they don't want to hear what I have to say. Keep sharing the gospel. So much in this text, so much. Really, I feel like we just hit the highlights. And even though I don't have a flight, you might have a roast in the pot or somewhere to go. So let's just sort of wrap it up by saying this. Where does this land in your heart? If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this text ought to absolutely terrify you. It ought to terrify you because it declares what is lying ahead for your eternal future, the judgment and damnation of God. If you're a believer here this morning, 
There are a lot of ways this comes to bear. Number one, do you care about the harvest of judgment that's coming? Is there any motivation in your life to tell people about Christ? Are you willing to pray that God would send laborers into the field? Are you willing to be one of the laborers who's sent into the field? Are you willing to trust God's provision in your life and step out in faith and go do the work of the ministry that he's called you to do? You say, well, I don't know, I don't know enough to do it. You know enough to do it. You say, well, I, don't, I haven't been trained you know, to do ministry. These men had hardly any training. You've got what you need. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to tell somebody else how to be saved. Right? You say, well, I don't have all the answers to everybody's questions. Well, you don't have to have all the answers to everybody's questions. Just get out there and answer the questions you can answer. And find somebody who can answer the ones you can't. You'll never see God's provision in your life until you step out and do it. Go. And you're content with what he provides. And you're trusting in the power of the message. It isn't about you. You don't have to be charismatic. You don't have to be winsome. You don't have to be particularly compelling. You just have to be faithful. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the message that saves. It's not the messenger. You don't have to be special. You don't have to be particularly bright. You don't have to be particularly educated. You just have to be faithful. And the message does the work. God saves people through the message when we share it. Especially when we share it with a heart that cares about them as people and is willing to serve them where they have needs. We have to go, people. Billions of people in our world, millions of people in our nation, tens of thousands of people within five miles of us. What are we going to do? We just keep coming every Sunday and look at each other and studying and saying, boy, that's, that's great. While the cemetery is active every week, where are we going to go? Lord Jesus, help us to go and help us to pray. There's a temptation to read a text like this and say, well, those 72 must have been special. You sent them. The rest of us are good to go. It's the exact opposite of what you're trying to tell us. Discipleship isn't complete in our life until we're ready to disciple somebody else. Evangelism isn't even complete in our life until we're able and willing to evangelize someone else. And Lord, we confess corporately, and I trust my friends are doing as I am confessing individually. We don't care nearly enough about the harvest that's plentiful. We don't care nearly enough about the eternal destiny of our friends and neighbors. We don't think about hell. We don't want to because it's easier to just pass by them when we don't think about it. But ignoring reality doesn't change reality. And you've called us to go. And you've equipped us with everything that we need to go. And you've promised to provide for us everything we need to go. The question is only when will we trust you enough to step out in faith? And what's holding us back? Spirit of God, we need your help. We need your conviction on our lives. We need you to shine the light into our souls to reveal, Lord, why and where we're sitting against you in this area. Why we're content not to go and why we're content not to pray.
that we need you to draw us to repentance. And we need you to give us the faith to go and to care and to pray. For that man or woman who's on the fence, Lord Jesus, not sure whether they should bow before you as the king, I pray that you'd call them to yourself today. That they might be saved. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.